Bible reading is taken from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish the number of the men who had eaten was five thousand Welcome to Church at Home. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. If you're with us for the first time, we're delighted you've joined us and I do hope that by the grace of God, our Bible study this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you even as you continue in fellowship with a local church. Now one of the unhappy consequences of the prolonged lockdown is apparently a dramatic increase in the number of people suffering from mental illness. Very understandable, uh, but it seems that many of us have turned in on ourselves with the result that we're not seeing things as they really are. Now our study this morning speaks to that problem and it points the way out of the darkness and into the light of reality and truth. So if our study this morning leaves you with questions uh, or you'd like someone to pray with you, we'd be delighted to help. 
Uh, can I encourage you to visit our website www.sbbc.org.za and uh, on the home page there's a contact tab and if you'd like to leave your contact details there someone on the team will get in touch with you during the week. So uh, <clears throat> as we begin can I invite you to open your Bible to Mark's Gospel chapter 6 verse 30 and uh, as we begin I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Will you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you have taught us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would come to us this morning as a father with little children, that you would break down for us the bread of life. We pray that you would not only open our mouths that we might feed, but also our hearts, that we might inwardly digest the food of the gospel. And we pray that as we look again into your word, that we might find the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life, who's come down from heaven, that in him we might enjoy eternal and everlasting life. Speak to us then, Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I suppose that if there were to be one story in our series where your mind might be tempted to wander, it would be the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, some of you might be thinking right now, Sunday school, five loaves, two fish. What more is there to say? Let's move on. But I do hope that as we look at our text this morning that it will come alive in a fresh way for you as it has for me because it is a highly significant miracle. It's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And the interesting thing is that in the chapters that follow, Jesus is surprised that the disciples haven't understood it. Now perhaps you do understand it, I don't know. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the meaning of this miracle was meant to be clear. Jesus expected his disciples to get it, but they didn't. In fact, we're told quite plainly later in this chapter, in verse 52, the disciples had not understood it. And in chapter 8 and verse 17, Jesus says to them, Do you still not understand? And the obvious answer was, No, I'm afraid we don't. Now, there are at least two things the disciples don't get. The first is that they don't really get Jesus' identity. Specifically, they don't really see his supremacy. Uh, like so many people today, they have a low view of Jesus. The second thing the disciples don't get, which really flows from it, is that they don't see his sufficiency. In other words, they're not really satisfied with Jesus. They consider him to be moderately good, moderately helpful, but no more than that. We're told that the people here have their hunger satisfied, verse 42. But as Mark's Gospel continues, it's perfectly clear that neither they nor the disciples are fully satisfied with Jesus. But you see, Jesus does this miracle to demonstrate that he is supreme and that you cannot have too high a view of him. Whatever your view of Jesus is, it can never be too high. 
And the other reason Jesus does this miracle is to prove that he is sufficient, not simply to meet our immediate needs, but also to satisfy your soul. Now, I don't know whether you're good at satisfying other people. Uh, I don't know whether you can satisfy your spouse, uh, or satisfy your children, or your grandchildren, or your employer, or even the lecturers at college. If you think about it, it's an extremely difficult thing to completely satisfy other people. Despite our very best efforts, we can't even satisfy ourselves. But you see, in this miracle, Jesus is saying, I can perfectly and completely satisfy your deepest needs. Now we know that unbelievers don't believe that. And in fact, many believers don't always feel it. But there are times, of course, when the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus break into our lives and we do begin to grasp what Jesus is talking about. More about that later. Last week, we saw King Herod holding a luxurious banquet. But uh, you remember that Herod missed his opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus, to believe it, and receive eternal life. Now this morning, we come to a very different banquet. In fact, it's a huge outdoor picnic. And the people are being given their opportunity to choose Jesus Christ or not. And we're going to look at this together by asking two questions. The first is very simple. How does Jesus Christ see people? And that's in verses 30 to 34. How does Jesus see people? Well, the answer is he sees them very accurately. And then the second question, which is the much more important question, is how do people see Jesus Christ? And the answer, of course, is not very accurately at all. So let's think about the first question. How does Jesus Christ see people? And uh, you'll notice in verse 30 that the apostles return from their mission. They're tired. And in verse 31, Jesus invites them to come with him for a weekend break to recharge their batteries. And I think it's fair to say that as Jesus looks at the disciples, he loves them. Uh, he cares for them. He wants to look after them and he wants to have fellowship with them. In fact, all the phrases in verse 31 are loaded phrases. So when Jesus says, come with me by yourselves, the idea is that Jesus wants their undivided attention with no distractions. When Jesus says, come with me to a quiet place, the word in the original there is the word for desert. Jesus says, come with me into the desert. And of course, Bible readers know that in the Old Testament, the desert was the place where God did a lot of his work in the lives of his people. And then, at the end of verse 31, where Jesus says, come with me and get some rest, the idea in the background is Sabbath rest. So what Jesus is saying to the apostles is, come away with me, and we're going to have a Sabbath rest together. So, notice, will you, that Jesus does not see his disciples as slaves to be squeezed or as machines to be run. He sees them as friends. He sees them as partners in his work. 
and he wants fellowship with them. But on this occasion, it doesn't happen. Because a massive crowd comes running and the whole plan is frustrated. So if you ask, well, did perhaps Jesus fail here? Uh, Can Jesus not take his disciples away to have a profitable time of fellowship? I think in answer to that question, we would have to say that the end result is that the disciples experience more fellowship, more partnership with Jesus than they could ever have dreamed possible. And of course, he also feeds them. So the end result is extremely deep and profound fellowship. So that's how Jesus sees his disciples. He looks at them and he is concerned for them. But how does Jesus see the lost? And you get this, don't you, from verses 33 and 34. Because people come running from everywhere, and if the crowd is 5,000 men, and the word is specific in the text, plus perhaps 5,000 women, plus maybe a couple of thousand children, this is a very large crowd indeed. But Jesus doesn't look at them as a nuisance. He doesn't see them as an interruption. No, verse 34, he has compassion for them. And uh, in the Gospels, the word compassion is only used with reference to Jesus. And it means a great deal more than that he just felt sorry for them. It means to be deeply and profoundly moved. Interestingly, that word compassion appears in Luke's Gospel in the parable of the prodigal son. Because when the father saw his son coming home, we're told that he had compassion for him and ran to meet him. And here that exact same word is used of Jesus Christ. So, as Jesus looks at the large crowd coming toward him, and this means, of course, more work for him, and he knows that they're not really interested in his agenda, he nevertheless looks on them with tremendous compassion. He doesn't see them as sick or sad or lonely. In fact, in verse 34, notice this, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's impossible to overstate the importance of that phrase. We could actually spend all our time this morning on that one little phrase, sheep without a shepherd. Because, you see, it's very easy for us to read that and think that as Jesus looks at them, he's saying, well, you people need kindness. You need someone to embrace you, someone who's going to pick you up and love you. That's the kind of shepherd you need. Now, there is a sense in which that's true. Lost people do need those things and Jesus is delighted to provide them. But you see, in the Old Testament, a shepherd was first and foremost a leader. And Jesus sees these people as not so much needing comfort. He sees them needing a leader. They need someone who's going to be over them, caring for them, running their life, directing their life, taking them to their God-appointed destination. And apart from him, there is no good leader. Now, because you and I have been conditioned to think of the shepherd as someone who kind of gives comfort and kindness, rather than being a leader, 
I want to give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament to prove the point, so stay tuned. The first is where Moses has been told that his life and ministry are coming to an end. Joshua is about to take over. And this is what Moses prays. He prays, May the Lord appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them so that the Lord's people will not be sheep without a shepherd. Numbers 27. So you see, Moses there is saying, Lord, if I've got to go, please raise up someone who will lead them so they won't be sheep without a shepherd. Or, listen to Ezekiel the prophet in chapter 34. Uh, God said, I will place over my people one shepherd. So this is God's plan for his people. There's going to be one shepherd over the people of God. But then, Ezekiel goes on to say, it's going to be David. Now when Ezekiel said that, King David had already been dead for more than a hundred years. So clearly this is going to be a new David, a descendant of David. And we know, don't we, that when Jesus is born, the New Testament tells us that Jesus has come from the house and line of David. So you see what Ezekiel is saying. He's saying, we're looking forward to the day when God will put over the people a shepherd who's a David. He'll be a king like David. So when you get the king, you get the shepherd. When you get the real shepherd, you've got the king. Now friends, I think this is really instructive for us. Because when we look at the lost, the people who don't know Jesus, we don't always look at them with compassion, do we? Uh, we might sometimes think, you know, reaching out to them is going to be exhausting, it's going to be draining, it might be really discouraging. But Jesus, you see, looks at this crowd with great compassion because he knows they desperately need a leader and he feels very deeply for them. Now that's how Jesus sees them. And of course, we must ask the Lord to help us see lost people in the same way. And I think Psalm 23 can help us here. You don't need to turn to it. But uh, Psalm 23 is one of the loveliest psalms in the Bible. <clears throat> it talks about the experience of the person who knows the Lord as their shepherd. But you know, if we turn Psalm 23 upside down, and we think of what life might be like for the person who does not know the Lord as their shepherd, I find it deeply disturbing. Because it means, you see, that the Lord won't be making them lie down in green pastures, or leading them beside quiet waters, or restoring their soul, or guiding them in paths of righteousness. And at the end of their lives, they're going to have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death entirely on their own with no hope for the future. So you and I need to ask the Lord to give us the compassion of Jesus for all lost people. Notice that uh, this compassion in verse 34 causes Jesus to teach them. That's the first thing he did. He wants them to know there's a king. So he doesn't just hug them and kiss them and leave it at that. He informs them. Matthew, in his Gospel, tells us that Jesus here healed and fed. Mark says Jesus taught and fed. Luke tells us that Jesus 
taught and healed and fed and John tells us that he fed and taught so put all that together and I think we can say with confidence that Jesus was primarily concerned for the long term spiritual welfare of people but he also didn't fail to meet their immediate needs and you see if we ask this question how does Jesus see people the answer in these verses of Mark 6 is that he sees his own people as friends wanting fellowship and he sees the lost as helpless people needing relationship and that you see is what you and I have to take away from these verses this morning Jesus seeks fellowship with believers and to the unbeliever he offers relationship Uh, and it's my prayer that the Lord would enable me and would also enable you to appreciate the compassion that he has for us he knows what we're going through he knows what we've been through he knows what we need and I, I do pray that we might appreciate the compassion Jesus has for us and may we also share some of the compassion that Jesus has for lost people I know that I need that my heart is sometimes very hard so this is sometimes this is something that we can all pray about and that's the first thing this morning how does Jesus see people and uh, the second thing is how do people see Jesus Christ and the sad reality is that people don't see Jesus Christ very accurately at all and they don't appreciate him but sometimes it does dawn on people and uh, they're bursting with appreciation and gratitude Uh, Barry Maguire was a folk singer um, a folk rock singer in the 1970s Uh, Bob Dylan said that he was the greatest folk rock singer on the planet and uh, Barry Maguire has a tremendous testimony Uh, he says that his life was spiralling downwards with uh, drink and drugs and, and girls and rock and roll and he says that one day he was at a friend's house and he was just reaching out for a packet of cigarettes and suddenly he caught sight of a little book on the table called Good News for Modern Man and it turned out to be a paraphrase of the New Testament in modern English and uh, Barry Maguire thought to himself well I'm a modern man and so he opened it up and he started to read the New Testament and to cut a long story short he was converted now when he was converted he described his conversion like this he said I've lost 16 of my friends who've died from drug overdoses and a number of other stupidities and he said so here am I because of my lifestyle choices effectively I'm on death row and I look down on the ground and I see a little piece of paper and it says your crimes have been paid for signed Jesus Christ and then Barry Maguire says this I'm a high school dropout but I'm not a complete fool so I take that and I put it in my coat and when I take the pardon offered by Jesus Christ I discover that there's no more prison cell there's no electric chair I'm free so then my friends come to me and say why would you want to be a Christian 
what price have you paid to become a Christian? And he replies, well, I feel like an Eskimo who's won the lottery and moved to Miami. He says, I've got rid of my whaleskin coat. Is that a burden? No, I was glad to get rid of it. And then he says, I've also got rid of the fame and the fortune and the girls, the drugs, the drink and all the things that were leeching my life. And one of his friends says to him, I think Jesus Christ has become your crutch. And he replied, no. Jesus Christ is the bones in my leg. I've thrown the crutch away. Now you see, that's a person, isn't it, capturing something of what it means to see Jesus Christ for who he really is. To appreciate his supremacy and his sufficiency. It's a lovely burst of enthusiasm. And it's the, the sort of thing that could have come from those who witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. But the disciples don't get it. <coughs> Excuse me, do you see that in verse 35? The disciples come to Jesus. Uh, Jesus has finished his teaching and they say to Jesus, look, now is the time to send everyone home. It's getting late. Uh, you've given your talk. It was a great talk. It was a really lovely talk. But now these people are hungry. So let's be practical. After all, you can't do anything about that. So notice how Jesus teaches them about the human impossibility of feeding the crowd and how he teaches them that this is going to be a miracle. Because he says to them in verse 37, give them something to eat. Now of course, that immediately exposes to the disciples their own inadequacy. And they say, how could we possibly feed this crowd? It would take eight months' wages. <clears throat> so I was thinking about what this means for us. I, I suppose it depends on whether we're talking about eight months' wages before or after lockdown. But however you measure it, it's a huge sum of money. And, and here's Jesus facing the disciples with the fact that they have nothing except five loaves, two fish. So now we know, don't we, that if everybody's going to eat, there's got to be a miracle. And the language in this section is very, very special. So we read in verses 39 and 40 that Jesus, first of all, did what Moses did, which is to get the crowd to sit in groups of 50 and 100. So this is very much an echo of what Moses did with Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is saying, look, did Moses get people organised? Well, I'm going to get people organised. Then he does what David's shepherd does. So you remember in Psalm 23 that the shepherd who is the Lord makes them sit down on green grass. Now it's just a little detail there in verse 39. But Mark expects you and I to get it. So Jesus, you see, is sounding very much like Moses' successor and he's looking just like the shepherd of Psalm 23. And then Jesus does what neither Moses nor David could do. He actually produces, creates the food. Because if you think about it, in the Old Testament, Moses was a beggar. Faced with an enormous hungry crowd, he could do nothing but beg God. And David was a beggar. 
Uh, faced with troops who were extremely hungry, he could do nothing but beg other people for food. But here's Jesus, and he's not a beggar. He's a provider. He basically takes that tiny amount of food, he says grace, and then he turns that tiny morsel into something really wonderful. The Bible doesn't actually sensationalise how the miracle worked. It's very brief. It all takes place in verse 41. Uh, the Bible doesn't elaborate on what it looked like, although, of course, it would have been fascinating, wouldn't it, to have filmed it. I mean, was Jesus taking little pieces and multiplying them? Or did he give the disciples little bits and uh, then as the disciples distributed it, it became a feast? In other words, did Jesus do the miracle in his own hands? Uh, or did he do it through the disciples? And we don't know because the text doesn't say. But we do know it was a miracle. And the disciples ought to have known it was a miracle. And they should have known who was behind it. Now many people, of course, have tried to explain this miracle away by saying that, well, you know, what we have here is a preview of Holy Communion. So everybody got just a teeny weeny piece. But hang on a minute. What about the 12 baskets of leftovers? And what about the statement that when they finished, everyone was satisfied? I mean, think about that. If you've got 12 baskets of leftovers, and let's say 12,000 people sitting outside, and you can't get rid of the leftovers, well, you know people are full. I mean, you can imagine the apostles saying, can't you, come on, please have some more. And the people are saying, we can't. We're stuffed. We couldn't eat another thing. So this is the Son of God who's created the universe from nothing now creating a feast from next to nothing and feeding, we guess, somewhere between ten and 15,000 people so that their hunger is completely satisfied. Now as a result of this, how do people see Jesus and I want to say to you again that this miracle teaches that you simply can't have too high a view of the Lord Jesus Christ. He leaves Moses behind, he leaves David behind, because this is God. He does what Moses could never do, he does what David could never dream of doing, he simply gives thanks and he provides. So you see, what God did in the wilderness in the Old Testament, Jesus does in the New Testament. In other words, the leader that Moses had been praying for has obviously arrived, and the shepherd that David was pointing to has also obviously arrived. Now many people in Cape Town today will say, look, I believe in Jesus Christ, yes I do. But I don't believe he's the only way to God. I believe he's a way, but I don't believe he's the only way. Well, my friends, whoever they're claiming to believe in, it's not the Jesus of the New Testament. Because you simply cannot read these eyewitness reports about Jesus with integrity and seriousness and say, well, Jesus is just a way. I mean, you might as well look up at the sun in the sky and you say and say to yourself, well, you know, I like the sun. Yes, I really do. But you know what? We don't need it. We'll get by just fine with either Jupiter or, or Venus. No. 
if there's going to be any physical life on earth, we need the S-U-N in the heavens. And if there's going to be any eternal life for men and women, we need the S-O-N that we find in the Gospels. Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. And therefore, friends, as we continue in our series in the coming weeks, we're going to find Jesus Christ is shocked and disappointed that his disciples haven't really got it. Because the message is crystal clear. I mean, could an ordinary man feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish? Obviously not. But Jesus did feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Therefore, he's not an ordinary man. No, this is God come into his world. Now, verse 42 says that the people all ate and were satisfied. And we know from John's account that Jesus wants us to see in this miracle that he is the bread of life. That means it's a way of saying that he can satisfy our deepest needs. No one else can do that. And therefore, I really do want to urge you to keep thinking about this miracle in the coming week. I know it's familiar, but the more you think about the miracle, the more you're going to see that Jesus Christ has the compassion to do it, he has the ability to do it, and he's absolutely central to it. Because if you take Jesus out of the story, all you've got is hungry people and helpless disciples. Now, we've got to see that this miracle makes Jesus quite clearly supreme and sufficient. And I do hope as you reflect on this during the week that you'll say to yourself, yes, this is who I belong to. Someone who is absolutely supreme and sufficient. And I do hope that you're going to allow this miracle to govern the way you think about your troubles so that you say to yourself, this is who I belong to. He knows all about my situation. He does have the ability to meet the needs of my situation. Therefore, I'm going to trust him. And I also hope that you're going to allow this miracle to control the way you think about your future. Because, you see, this miracle is a preview of the great banquet of the last day, where God's people from all four corners of the earth will gather at a table with Jesus at the head, and we will then honour him as he deserves to be honoured, and he will satisfy us beyond belief. And that is God's promise. And yet as I close, I do think it's possible that I and you will be tempted even this week to think that Jesus is not really supreme. And that I'll say to myself, you know, those people who don't have Jesus, well, they're fine really. The truth is they're not fine and it would be quite wrong to say that. We might also be tempted to think that Jesus is not really that sufficient and that uh, when this service is over this morning and we go into a bit of a slump, uh, I and you are going to be tempted to supplement Jesus with some secret remedies. And that will be wrong as well. Because the clear message, the overriding message of Mark chapter 6 is that Jesus is absolutely supreme and he is absolutely sufficient. And therefore, we must trust him. So let's pray together. 
Our gracious God, we thank you for giving us this window into the beauty and greatness of the Lord Jesus. We see him here to be the supreme Son of God in the world, full of compassion, full of power. We ask that you would help us to trust him. We also see his compassion for the lost and his desire that people should have a king, a leader, a shepherd. And we pray that you would renew our compassion for lost people, that we would love them and that you would use us in some remarkable way to point people to him. And we ask that you would hear our prayer and renew our faith, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.